Welcome to the United States of Health blog podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, North American Executive Editor of The Lancet. The third paper of our new Lancet series, America, Equity and Equality in Health, is called Structural Racism and Health Inequities in the USA, Evidence and Interventions. In this podcast, we'll talk with authors Zinzi Bailey and Mary Bassett. I'm Mary Bassett. I'm the Health Commissioner for New York City. I was appointed in 2014 by Bill de Blasio when he became mayor. Hi, I'm Zinzi Bailey. I work in the Center for Health Equity at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Drs. Bassett and Bailey, for joining us today and to talk about this. We are just absolutely thrilled that this series has finally come together and it could not happen, I think, at a more important time historically in the U.S. And this is such an incredible topic because it really hasn't received as much attention as it should, I think, from mainstream medical journal communities. But I think that this series, which really tries to do its best to kind of reveal some of the underpinnings of health inequity and to make these topics more accessible is really a first step. And so we're very pleased to have both of your expertise and and viewpoints on this to kind of walk us through some of the important messages in the paper. So the paper itself covers a lot of ground, both historically and and academic context-wise. And I think that most of us would probably be tempted to ask you first for a definition of structural racism, but I think that the way the paper is structured and kind of both in terms of what your backgrounds are, it probably would be helpful to give us more of, instead of just the operational definition at the beginning, to kind of give us a sense of what the, the experience of indigenous people and black people in North America has been and how that has led into this concept. So you're absolutely right that... Structural racism hasn't appeared often in the medical literature or the public health literature. And we chose that phrase advisedly because it is rooted in the history of the United States. The United States, of course, began as a settler colony. It owes its existence to genocidal campaigns against indigenous people and the appropriation of their land, a process that went on over hundreds of years. And of course, important to the initial development of the U.S. economy was its reliance on enslaved African labor. Now, often people think that the use of enslaved labor was confined to the southern states, but that's not true. The entire United States began with the use of enslaved labor. Now, those dynamics lay the historical context for racism as we know it today, not only systems of belief about racial superiority, inferiority, but also a set of institutional systems, ones that are really society-wide. So they're not just institutional racism, which many people may be familiar with that phrase, But structural racism refers more broadly to the ways in which whole sets of institutions, patterns, and beliefs serve to both produce and reproduce the marginalization and exclusion of people based on the assessment of the race to which they belong. That's what we mean by structural racism. Very often the conversation about racism and health is conducted in the language of personal prejudice or interpersonal racism, the kinds of biases that may affect a physician's assessment of a patient. 
And of course, these are real and well-documented. But we're talking about something much broader than that, something that exists not only within healthcare systems, but housing, education, employment, earning structures, benefit structures, the media, our criminal justice system. It's so widespread that the only word that works for it really is structural. Now that we've kind of mapped out a little bit about the concept that we're talking about, let's get into more about what the specific ramifications of structural racism are. And I found that, you know, in reading the multiple iterations of the paper and kind of thinking about this more, some are not as obvious as others. And in the pathway, you've referred to these as pathways between racism and health. So maybe we could get into some of these items. I wonder, though, I just am thinking about what I just said. And when I talk about this, because I'm older than Zinzi, and I'm going to ask her to talk about the pathways, I, you know, I often think about the phases in U.S. history, and I haven't said anything about that. So the arrived slave Africans began in the 17th century, before the U.S. project had even been really thought of as a national project and, of course, became foundational to in U.S. history. Many contemporary historians and more recent historiography has pointed to the fact that the growing alarm about the U.S. system of enslaved Africans in the U.K., in England, was leading the England progressively towards um, outlawing, banning slavery. First it began in England and then extended so that the colonists really began their secession movement from Britain because they wanted to protect their ability to maintain an economic system that relied on enslaved labor. That didn't end until the middle of the 19th century with the Civil War. So that was hundreds of years. And then, of course, Jim Crow followed this short period of Reconstruction. So for me, as someone who came of age in the 1960s, the period between 1965 and 1980, uh, the period of the Great Society programs and a whole host of what we would now call progressive legislation, ranging from access to health care to environmental protections, that period was really the first period where the legal structure for discrimination against people of African descent was dismantled. That didn't mean it went away, and it continued, and actually in the 80s began to escalate again under policies that were conducted under the cover of colorblindness, the war on drugs, a so-called colorblind policy that resulted and really triggered what we call today mass incarceration. So this is, you know, deeply embedded in the history of our nation, and I think it's very telling that we talk so little about it, and that probably also has something to do with the fact that the conceptual framework of how this lived experience affects both our institutions, our patterns of belief and gets into our bodies has been so underexplored. Let's talk about those pathways now. So I'm going to turn it over to Cindy. So when we're talking about pathways between racism and health, 
Uh, we are talking about racism on multiple levels. Structural, institutional, interpersonal, internalized. But this is a good way to start to operationalize and for you know, health professionals, health researchers to start to think about how structural racism may operate, how racism in general operates, and how it can impact the health of individuals, families, and communities. I think one key element is economic injustice and social deprivation, and we can see that a lot through residential segregation. And I think that's the overarching pathway that facilitates each one of the other pathways. For example, when you're talking about environmental and occupational health inequities, residential segregation facilitates being able to locate a bus shelter, or bus garage, or toxic waste site near a particular neighborhood. And precisely, redlining was based on that. I think it's just so these pathways are a good way to think about and operationalize how racism impacts health. And from a practical point of view, right now we're sitting in the East Harlem Neighborhood Health Action Center. It's a health department building located in East Harlem, which is one of the neighborhoods in our city that has excess burden of premature mortality and worse outcomes on a whole variety of social indicators, health as well as educational attainment, incarceration, and so on. So the health department has focused its efforts on this geographic area, that focus is basically made possible by residential segregation. This is actually a really interesting week for us to be kind of in preparation of the U.S. series coming out. We also have the launch of our new journal, The Lancet Planetary Health, which, which explores some of these same types of topics. And But it's very striking. I think in, you know, in the paper, some of the examples that, that you use to illustrate what these really specific pathways are between racism and health. And Zinzi, you mentioned redlining. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Redlining was a way, so without necessarily saying explicitly, this is where black Americans will live, this is where Italian Americans will live, this is where people of, of Hispanic descent may live. Being able to identify areas within a city, primarily within urban context, to identify particular areas that were less desirable, and people who were in seeking housing, seeking even home ownership, were directed towards these less desirable areas. And it's called redlining because they had a system of, of different colors, whereby neighborhoods that were less desirable were outlined in red, and it was a explicit policy within a lot of urban contexts. So redlining, you know, without being totally explicit or publicly explicit, was able to direct how our cities have been formed, and that legacy is with us today. I can't emphasize enough the role of residential segregation in all of these pathways of racism to health. Sort of capitalizing on that last point, too, and the, the notion of, of how ingrained some of these legacies are. But also, I think, Dr. Bassett, as, as you mentioned, too, this idea of the kind of slow erosion of some of the progressive legislation of the 60s and how that has sort of left us in this kind of nebulous territory right now where there really seem to be lots of major assaults on health. And what I'd like to talk about next that is one of the really special parts of the paper that you have is that it actually 
talks about some of the ways that structural racism could be addressed, mitigated, potentially undone. And it would be great to kind of hear your thoughts about that and how we might positively influence health equity through some of these specific mechanisms. Well, you're certainly right that we are concerned that the change in the federal administration with the election of Donald Trump may well have an impact on housing. A lot of the examples that we gave you about ways in which we can tackle structural racism had to do with tackling housing. Right. Um, I think one of the key programs that we highlighted was the Choice Neighborhoods, which supports kind of neighborhood transformation along three different avenues. So it's hoping to replace distressed public and assisted housing with kind of high-quality, well-managed housing and not to segregate by racialized group or by income, but having mixed-income housing, being able to improve educational opportunities for youth and also create conditions necessary for public and private reinvestment. So under proposed budget cuts, the choice program will be eliminated. So I think we are at a point, a key point in our history where we will see that structural racism places a burden on people of color when we're talking about proposed budget cuts or restrictive bills, particularly for marginalized racialized groups. In New York City, we have a different city agency called Housing Preservation and Development. Now, their housing stock is aimed not at the lowest a quartile of income groups, but sort of in low income, but not lowest income. And they distribute housing by a lottery. You have to apply and you have to be eligible, but once you get through those hurdles, you can get a whole apartment, not just an opportunity for an apartment, but be offered an actual apartment uh, based on a lottery. And that random assignment gave them an opportunity to look at a variety of outcomes that might be associated with getting a house versus not getting a house. Actually, they're not houses in New York City. (laughs) As I well know. They showed, interestingly, uh, an impact on the occurrence of diabetes. Really interesting. So I think that, you know, we have these nuggets of information that suggests that being housed in, in affordable, decent housing has a positive impact on health. And that, of course, is what racialized, income-segregated housing does to people, is it deprives them of the opportunity to have decent, affordable housing. So that's a really important intervention. It's not a typical health intervention, but I don't see any reason why we shouldn't see it that way. But of course, as Zinzi points out, we are concerned about the fact that affordable housing will come under threat. But it's a priority of our mayor, and New York City is deeply committed to protecting and expanding its affordable housing stock. So we can expect that to have an impact on health. One thing that comes out of what you're saying, too, is the need for being more flexible in terms of how we think about interventions that still affect health, that aren't necessarily health interventions in the same way that that we have defined them before, but how truly flexible we need to be about thinking about this. You know, one thing that also really struck me in your paper is sort of this call for training the next generation of health professionals. And I think both of you, I think, are a good example of two 
generations of health professionals and how do we pass the baton um, between generations and to ensure that we are not losing information sort of in that transfer, but that we're also really providing this next generation of individuals with tools and flexible thinking and getting them ready to handle some of these very serious challenges that, that could be exacerbated phenomenally in the next four years, for example. Well, this is something that's really important to me, and I, and I want to distinguish it from the kind of language of cultural competence and cultural sensitivity to really placing front and center, having education that addresses racism. Now, the health department, I think, likes to think of itself as a training institution, even if we're not one that grants degrees. And we have embarked on an effort to embed a whole culture of having conversations about race, training people on implicit bias, training them about what we mean by terms like racial anxiety, stereotype threat. This has now involved our entire management, and I have committed that our entire agency, that's 6,000 people, will experience this training. And I think that this notion of, of structural competency as contrasted with this idea of sensitivity or so on is really an important distinction to make. We certainly are experiencing the importance of that distinction here within our agency. We really have to look elsewhere, though, to see it undertaken on broad scale to Canada, New Zealand, and other places. But that, of course, doesn't stop us from making a call to our medical schools, our nursing schools, our schools of public health to take up the challenge to training people to become structurally competent professional. And I think that there's also an emphasis on cultural humility uh, paired with structural competence. Structural competency, you know, it's referring to being well-versed in how to think about, for example, structural racism as it relates to who you might be seeing in a doctor's office or who you might be identifying within public health data sets or who you might be seeing in a public health program. But the cultural humility is being able to have a constantly reflective practice in whatever position you're in to be able to learn from others and be able to be prepared to learn for, from others, no matter how competent at certain elements you might think you are. And that relies on kind of being able to assess and be able to recognize the role of implicit bias in how we operate day-to-day. -day. Thank you for bringing that point up, too. I think that that is just something that we don't hear enough about and is, it really just you know affects everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I think it is something, too. I think that all of us who work in some way in health, it, it's a message that we need to hear as well. So I think that's a perfect place to stop. I wish that we had more time to speak with you. There's so many things that you've brought up that are so fascinating. So I hope that at some point, again, we can reconnect and kind of see where we are. Maybe we can do some sort of post-series update. Uh, we want to thank you for sticking with this whole process. And I think it really is a contribution. And we're like to put it on the pages of The Lancet. The United States of Health blog podcast is written and produced by Rebecca Cooney and Aaron Van Dorn in the New York office of The Lancet. Theme music taken from Seeker by Kai Engel. 
To listen to more podcasts, check out usa.thelancet.com.